This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. We're going to talk about The Dying Earth, a novel-slash-collection from 1950, written by Jack Vance. I bet my bottom dollar that this is a, a Paul-inspired book. This, I, I, I am cer- Yeah, I'm certain I was the one who inspired this after we did uh, The Moon Moth. I right. suggested, mm-hmm. we, should do more di- we should do more Jack Vance, why don't we do some Dying Earth? Because you weren't into the idea of doing a series, so that kind of knocked out some possibilities. Yep. Yeah. Technically, you tricked me, though. This is a series of stories inside a book. (laughs) Some people don't call it a novel. They call it a collection. A story suite, some people call it. Yeah. Which is kind of highfalutin way of saying the stories are connected. And and, I mean, I mean, you do have one character. The characters kind of go from one to the next. You see see one of the major roles and see a minor role. Minor becomes a major. Except for... uh, Geosphere, which is much more self-contained and much more just an individual unit. But the first five are kind of uh, strung along. So it's a great book of language. Um, mm. I want to uh, I want to ask Marissa a question though, because I, I haven't read this before. This is the first time for me. Had you read this before? No, this is first time for me as well. Okay. Now that you have, I still have another question for you. If I come and witness the excellent prismatic spray of Hollywood, its travertine mm-hmm. streets and its lapis lazuli roads, <laughs> wow. will you buy me a black dragonfly to ride like my brother Paul's? Of course. Thank you. Why wouldn't I? It's just I, I'm, I hate the world and everything in it, but I'm, I'm trying to change. <laughs> this is a weird book, Paul. <laughs> it's really weird, but really good. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so, so yeah, so I had heard about this book for years because it's in appendix end of the Dungeon Master's Guide. The magic system of Dungeons and Dragons is 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 uh, explicitly described as fancy, and so I'd heard about Jack. I mean, I'd read other Jack Vance. Before, um, before this, I mean, stories like the Moon Moth, the uh, the Demon Princess novels, the Planet of Adventure novels. I mean, it took a long while for me to actually get to read this because it was just out of print. I mean, I remember going into a used bookstore and finding and seeing a print copy of this, a just thin paperback for the bargain price of $25 in 1990 money, Oof. which, yeah, so I thought – uh, maybe I will wait. And then finally, when they started getting reprinted, uh, toward did some omnibus editions, I finally was able to actually get into the dying earth in a way that I'd only been able to get on from the side. Be, just be a, be, be a second order effects. I mean, Gene Wolfe's novels are very much based on the dying earth. As far as that, that future mix of technology and technology and magic. So when I finally got into this, like, ah, okay, this is what it's, this is how good it was. So it's, it was, yeah, it wasn't until the nineties I actually got to actually delve into the dying earth and the richest of the language, the strange, the strangest of the far future, the amoral characters who seem intent on usually just screwing each other over that, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, except for Gial, maybe there's, I mean, there's not a lot of characters you can you actually would trust to actually have dinner with uh, or you would trust not to steal your money but it's just such a wondrous world to me I mean as a, as, as a role player long time listeners know I role play a lot I mean I mean this is a rich world to go and explore as as the as the sun is starting is starting its final descent into into dying the, the sky is relatively dark and the earth is weird and wondrous with the leftovers of billions of years of civilization just lying around. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I've not read the dying earth before. Um, I've read as you had a little bit of Jack Vance. Um, 
But it's funny because I'm very familiar with the genre. I just didn't think of it like as being defined by this books. So I can see, mm. I can see uh, its future echoes and obviously its subsequent stuff. But this is the the one I sort of think of as right in the middle. <laughs> I guess there's a like I was thinking um, this morning about how uh, if you squint a little bit the um, the Matrix is actually a dying Earth story. <laughs> um, the way, um, Whoa. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you think about how you know they're underground and uh, Earth's—I don't know—not doing so well up top. Um, but how if if they access um, certain—I don't know—special moves, um, they can memorize or use skills to i don't know become fighting machines or whatever i mean it turns it into a hollywood movie but it is kind of um it is kind of a a weird twisted version of a dying earth and that's that's not the that's not you know maybe the most obvious one but i was thinking like why why is you know i was so familiar so obvious and so familiar is the magic system is from dungeons and dragons it's identical to this. Uh, see, I didn't have that. I haven't really played Dungeons and Dragons, so I had no idea about these connections until I started like googling this book mm-hmm. a little bit, and I mm-hmm. saw everyone mm-hmm. talking about that, and I was like, oh, there's a whole community of people who know the magic and the runes and stuff from this book back and front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like the prismatic spray is a spell uh, in. It's a it's a ninth level spell. It's one of the most powerful spells in the game it's pretty nasty <laughs> right and and the way i like how um the other spells we get in here they all have like uh some magician's name attached to them you know like uh, i i'm trying to think of the ones that are in the book but the, there's a whole bunch of them in dungeons and dragons where it's just you assume that the the guy whose name is attached to it was a was the wizard who invented this spell and it'd be mm. like mordecai's cloak of invisibility or whatever it is right uh, or I guess those are magic items, but uh, no, no, yeah, but like, 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 like Big B's grasping hand. So go. Big yeah. B was clear was a spe- was a was a spellcaster who came up with uh, with with the spell. Yeah, this there's book a is floating full. disc one too. What's that one, Paul? Tensor's floating floating disc. There you go. What that was in this book? No, no, these no, are these are names that are exact. Like if if I, I didn't follow it that closely, but. If we track the names of the spells in here, they follow sort yeah. of the same recipe. Magic Missile is like a super low-level spell, right? Uh, uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, so it doesn't get a name like. Um, that's funny. It, but yeah, he. There's a scene. I think it's in the second book or the second part of this story where um, he he's gonna jam five spells into his brain instead of four, and it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> And then he goes yeah, out in the woods I, and, and uses one of them, right? It's uh, so good. I think like reading this book, it was so fun. And it kind of gave me a little bit of FOMO about Dungeons & Dragons. Like I was like, what? Yeah. I don't know this game you guys are all playing, but that kind of sounds fun. <laughs> it is fun. It is fun. Yeah. I, I was not a big fan of, the, of playing the magical stuff. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when I was in playing Dungeons & Dragons, I don't think I ever rolled up a a magic user character. Um, but I liked having them out there. And and I didn't understand like why how magic could work. Like why would it be that you you memorize it and then you completely forget it and have to rememorize it? It seems like a stupid idea. However, it's it's um it's a way of making it controllable, right? If you can cast the same spell over and over again in the game, um you, you know, I cast magic missile again. It makes the story kind of stupid, but yeah, also that's kind of boring as well. But yeah, it's also like overpowered, as they say. The oh, the kids say it's OP. Yeah, <laughs> which usually they it's mean. It's kind of why thing. it's similar to that thing of why I don't enjoy superhero movies that much. Like right. when someone has an ability that they can just keep on, they can just pull it out of their pocket any old time. It's like, eh. What was that? There was know. a superhero show a few years ago. It started off really. I think it was called Heroes, right? You guys remember oh, yeah. the show? Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I've completely forgotten about it to this point, but it starts off really well, where you get these these new heroes showing up, and then as you as the story goes on, you realize, wait a second, I don't really want need to watch the next season of this show, 
because right. you got the idea and it's more like it's more like just drama now. Yeah. Once they have a handle on their abilities and they can use it. It's like Origin yeah. stories are the, actually the most interesting kind of stories for superheroes, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why we keep getting them over and over exactly. again. Exactly. That's why they keep rebooting the Spider-Man movie. <laughs> Every couple of movies. <laughs> Time for a new Spider-Man. Okay. Um, but this... I have the I have the list of five spells that. Oh, uh, do you? Mazarian. Uh, Mazarian does. Mazarian made a selection from his books and, with great effort, forced five spells upon his brain. Fandel's Gyrator, Feliquin's second hypnotic spell, the excellent prismatic spray, the charm of untiring nourishment, and the spell of the omnipotent spear. So he's loaded for bear with that. But, <laughs> but yeah, but once he uses a spell, he, it's gone until he can memorize again, which is exactly how it works in... Dungeons, I, okay, so we should be uh, clear. That's how it works through most of early Dungeons & Dragons. Once you get to 4th edition, things go really weird, whereas people get spells that they can use every turn, which I know, as a purist, goes like, wait, what? You can mm-hmm. cast it every turn without ceasing? What the heck is that? Or you can use it once a day unless you roll high, and then you can use it again. Like, this is not the fancy magic I learned, man. I, I wish, I wish they had the actual words in the, in the you know, like when you, if, if you've got, I have these big manuals that I, I never really use. I just have them, you know, Marissa, where it's, you know, it's got a list of the spells. It's a spell book, basically. For Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, for Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons. And, and the <laughs> so thing is, is, it tells you what it does. Are they big tomes with it, the covers? They're pretty nice. They're not as big as I'd like them to be. <laughs> awesome. But, um... It says, you know, how many turns it lasts, and it says, you know, what the uh, damage will inflict and what kind of species or what, whatever it is. But it doesn't actually have, you know, the incantation that you could have the character use. Ah. And I think that that, if that was, if that, I mean, I, I haven't played, I think, maybe a tenth of what Paul has played. I think if you had that, that'd be add a lot of fun to the game. What do you think, Paul? Does anybody ever try uh, to make up their own spell words, tongue twisters? Well, as as it as it so happens, there, uh, I, I came across this years ago on the internet. Someone took the basic Dungeons and Dragons spell names and converted them all to Latin with the ah. proviso that you could suggest that the the player could say that phrase in Latin when they're casting the spell as a way of coming up with an incantation. I thought that was a great idea, actually. Yeah, that is a good idea. That's how Harry Potter spells work, right? That's how Harry Potter mm-hmm. spells work. And yeah, they're, they're all in Latin or pseudo-Latin. So, I mean, this 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 came out long before the Harry Potter series. So, it's it's just an old idea kicking around. It's just like, just I mean, just something more interesting, like I cast magic missile. It, 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 that's kind of rather flat role playing. Yes, I mean, it's sort more of more interesting. Like I point, I point, I point my wand at the arc. You shall die today. I ca- I cast this my magic missile at you. Thus, <laughs> that's a lot more interesting than, you know, just flat. Oh, okay, the orcs are coming. Okay, I will cast web. That's that's really <laughs> lazy role playing. Right, playing that kind of person probably is better off being playing a fire than playing a mage. Mm-hmm. Playing a mage is all about color and action and mm-hmm. doing big things. Can you tell I play mages a lot? <laughs> I um I also note that the in sort of a um, counter to Dungeons and Dragons, this book, uh, I think all the wizards carry swords. Um, yes. Which is, uh, I was when I was being indoctrinated into this as a callow youth, Marissa, um, I was told, you know, no wizards don't carry swords, and I say, well, that's well, why don't they carry swords? They have daggers. Why can't they carry just a long dagger? And uh, the answer I got was not satisfactory, but I understand. <laughs> Wait, now. this is when you were being indoctrinated into Dungeons yes, and Dragons. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I better understood why um, clerics are not allowed to use edged weapons. That that actually really has basis in history. Yeah. Why? Why can't they? Okay, so well, uh, as a cleric, you're supposed to be close to God and and do no wrong. You're supposed to be like Jesus, right? Um, which which means you can't go into a battle and start uh, stabbing people to death. 
However, um, they found a way around this. Technically. So the bishops, yeah. <laughs> they, they just go out in the field in the armor, and instead of carrying a big knife or an axe, they carry a big hammer. <laughs> and they said, what? I, uh-huh. I, I didn't make any blood. <laughs> I just crushed his head. I'm just swinging my arm, and if someone walks into it, That's you know, right. it's not my fault. <laughs> so there's, there's sort of a, a twisted logic to that. But, um, I mean, Gandalf is the, the wizard, right? And he carries a big long sword. So what's the story, Paul? Explain it. Um, the 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 story, we've gone way way past the dying earth here. But the, sir, the, we'll sto- the story, the story, the the story is that the reason why wizards can't carry swords and clerics don't carry swords, and fighters do, and thieves can only wear, carry certain weapons is basically to balance out the the classes. If you had a wizard that could hit with a sword as well as cast spells, then why would anyone ever play a fighter? That's right. Or and same thing for Clark. If you had a Clark that could carry a big two-handed sword, then why would you ever want to play a fighter? You could just play a Clark okay. hit with the sword and cast spells. So it's yeah. basically to balance out balance out what each kind of people to do. In the RPG system game, we call this niche protection. I think. Okay, I, I get think. it from like a story perspective. I thought there might be like an in-world reason, like within the like no. inside the actual world, why they can't do that. There is no, a it, there is a legitimate um, I, I, a way of doing this. If you're a really good dungeon master, this is what I would do. Um, you say, of course you can use a sword, but of course you, you spend all day cramming for your spell exams. So what's your skill level going to be? So every time right. you roll your your uh, d20, uh, you get a minus ten because <laughs> you uh, all the other people practice with swords all day. That's why they're called fighters, right? Yeah, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah, there, there was a oh my god I'm showing him so my geekiness there was a <laughs> article in Dragon Magazine way back in the day which suggested okay one way of getting around this is I, anybody can use any kind of weapon but if you do you just do less damage so a, a wizard can pick up a longsword and use it but they only do a d4 whereas a, a right. fighter does a d8 so you can you can swing that stupid sword around but you don't know how to use it you don't practice for hours a day so you don't do much damage with it and so that way, yeah, you just go ahead and go, use your daggers anyway, because why are you going to carry a giant sword that doesn't do much around with it? It's funny. It's funny that they, you know, just a, a book with a few stories in it can have a profound effect upon, I would say, hundreds of thousands of people's lives for yeah. decades and decades. I would say. Right? Yeah. I mean, the fact that that just the spell casting system that's invented in this 1950 novel is still being, you know, used right now somewhere in North America. Somebody's having a game, I'm sure. And <laughs> um, they're still um, dealing yeah, with the consequences yeah. of that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's so cool. It's, 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 it's just like one of the, I mean, it's just pure luck that. Gary Gygax happened to love these stories, so when he's looking around, well, how am I going to do magic in a tactical battle system? Oh, I will, I will just borrow from Jack Vance, and so, and so, and so the adventures of Mazarian and Lyane and Gial and all the, all the rest, are basically made permanent. At least their their ideas of you can only memorize certain spells, and once you have them, they're gone. And this idea of Wizards, I mean, not everything made through. I mean, wizards not aren't carrying swords mm-hmm. in Dungeons and Dragons, but I mean, otherwise, yeah. If you dropped a bunch of D and D player characters into the Dying Earth, they would not be on at home. It's like, okay, hmm. oh, powerful magicians running around, strange creatures, demons. This is just like home. Yeah, I I, I want to think about any other connections that there might be. So one of the things I note is that this at least in the Dungeons and Dragons modules that I've seen and read and games I've played, the story, the storyline, the plot lines don't, do not closely follow the kinds that we see in this book. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there are some a little more like that, but there seems to be a lot less, um, you know, notice there's no taverns <laughs> in this book, or if they are, they're pretty minimal. Um, there's a lot more, um, I'm a wizard and I have a, plan and here's what i'm gonna do and i have to make this bargain and uh i mean wait there's no taverns and dungeons and dragons No, it's the opposite i don't think there's any are there any taverns in this book um there's the one where uh liane is uh showing off his his 
magic ring so, that yeah. he can like when he gets those they're old town. yeah yeah Leanne's much more of a of a con man thief than an actual wizard but he's hanging, a, there's like a bunch of wizards in that tavern with him that are all like showing yeah. off their spells too right right <laughs> yeah but otherwise, yeah, the whole D&D idea of, yeah, we all meet in the tavern. That doesn't happen here. Here, as you're saying, Jesse, like, Wizard decides, oh, I want to learn I want to learn the magic to make real creatures, or I want to learn this, or <laughs> I, I, I've captured this wizard to try to get this wizard to teach me his secrets, or I wanna... I'm going to go across the mountains to go find this museum because my mind, I want to fill my mind with knowledge. That's not exactly standard D&D no, quests. No. Yeah. Although... Going back to Leane, because I do like Leane, even though he's a prat and he gets what he deserves. I mean, I mean, he he wanders around, gets in tr- gets in trouble. He meet he he, meet, he meets a woman. It's like I, I need I need you to save my tapestry, get my tapestry back from Chun the Unavoidable, and that's a real DD quest. Like I will go and do that. <laughs> and it's kind off. of amazing with him that like the first time we meet him, I think he's so horrible. Like he's torturing an innocent couple, murders the woman and then we follow a story with him and i was like so into that story like i could totally follow him around yeah like, oh, he's a horrible horrible person but so fun yeah, to read he is such a prat and yeah <laughs> i mean and he has one good trick and his one good trick doesn't help him against chun and i just love that it's like yeah yeah chun, oh, chun the unavoidable obviously I, when when brian bowed out he he uh used a chun the unavoidable metaphor um and uh, I just want to point out that the best of any kind of Dungeons and Dragons campaign would be sort of Chun the Unavoidable showing up as sort of a spontaneous, non-expected part of the planned RPG festival, and it just becomes sort of an in-joke within the within the the campaign, as they're called, Marissa. <laughs> you know, like, uh-oh, you do not want to get around the ire of Chun the Unavoidable, and then. They, uh, it's just yeah. unescapable, right? And that that kind of sort of perversity <laughs> of the dungeon master who comes up with this clever idea and then continually uh, forces this horror upon the characters is is sort of the the high point, I would say, of any Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Am I wrong, Paul? Uh, I I do remember seeing. Uh suggested stats for him once upon a time and it was both noticed like Chun the Unavoidable can follow any player character even if the characters travel to other planes of existence Chun can still follow them because <laughs> so he's unavoidable that's his that's his I, he's big and strong and wherever you go he can follow you he was awesome I hope that when he appears in the games as well that he would appear from behind a tapestry because <laughs> that was just too funny. <laughs> like, like, ha ha, I'm here. Yeah, of all the places, like just standing here behind the tapestry. He's almost a character <laughs> out of the Princess Bride, isn't he? Yes, totally. It's fun stuff. And, and a passion for eyes. What he do- quite does <sighs> with these eyes, yeah. It's like he liked he liked uh, Leanne's because they were nice and golden, and so and and so. Uh, she got two st- threads that time for, for bringing ch- for bringing Leia into him, rather yeah. than just one. That was a good story. Mm-hmm. I like that twist. The Twick men have uh, uh, unexplainable passion for salt. Mm. Right, those. There's the a bit of like dragon. spice and salt trading going on. Yeah, right? the dragonfly riding guys, um, who are, who even though the that girl that uh, the guys after is is. You know, actually helping and protecting them totally sells sells her out just for a vial of oil. Everybody in this world is pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. I told you, yeah. This is this is yeah. Everyone's screwing each other over, and it's yeah. It's it's not a it's not a place I would want to linger and visit. I mean, I would like to go see the falling wall and see some of these wonders, but I'd keep a hand on my pocket, another hand on my sword, and watch out for. Uh, Incoming uh, magicians wanting to uh, shrink me and put me in their little dungeons. Yeah, don't trust any of the the creatures you find sitting on a log in the middle of a meadow. Don't trust anything really. I mean, nah. it, 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 <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, like early Dungeons and Dragons where the player characters were just afraid of everything because the DM could throw anything at any moment. That that's kind of a very Vantian sort of point of view. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I mean, I mean, look at look 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 at all of Sphere who has a spell that as long as he doesn't leave the road, he's fine. But he gets he even he gets tricked and wind get getting start his horse gets started he winds up on the metal when you have to do this uh wind up uh judging judging the worst beauty contest of all time <laughs> that actually oh, felt like a win. that felt like a pool anderson story that that part um, yeah that, that felt that felt yeah that felt like something out of virgin planet that mm-hmm. was where, that that was funny it, it's it's interesting too because we don't just see it from like uh, in the first story we're not are we? We're not even on the dying earth, right? We're yeah, we're, we're on some other plane. Ambien or something? Ambulon? I can't remember. Yeah. And then we hear about the deep blue sky of of Earth, and uh, and then we go there, and then and it seems like. Am I wrong? Is that is not is it another? It's not another planet, right? It's just another mode of reality. I don't know. Uh, they they themselves don't exactly say no, but my impression is that uh, that it is a basically a pocket dimension that uh, hmm. that that uh, Pandalum created. Right. It's it's not said explicitly, but it's 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 my impression that yeah, Pandalum has his own little pocket uh, dimension of his own. It's actually because, probably, because sc- yeah, just a good place to go, so you're safe. Yeah, he's got everything he wants. He can work on his spells. I mean, I mean, things don't always work out. I mean, I mean, he uh, he he creates uh, to sane and created her wrong, so that oh yeah, she, his, she hates it. She hates everything and finds everything ugly and evil. But you know, his girls that he's growing in the vats don't always work out perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a little unclear. Are they all? Because uh, I, I remember that at least one of the other ones was a. He said the the female form, and I thought, well, maybe they're all females. He's just trying to make a girl, um, but he called most of them it, right? And I guess that's because they were not uh, fully formed or whatever. It's kind of oh, yeah. It's kind of like um. I, I, it, I but was he thinking, also does. He also does multiple things. He says, Pandalum's voice was amused. I too have vats where I mold life into varied forms. Right. This girl to say is I created, but I wrote carelessly with the flaw in the synthesis. So he makes all sorts of things because you know he's sitting in his little pocket dimension. What else? What what is what do people do all day? I mean, Iron Man builds suits of armor. Yeah. Pendulum just makes creatures and bats. That's what he does. That's, yeah. I mean, that's why Turjan wanted to find them because Pendulum's the on uh, the uncontested expert in this matter. So that's why Turjan went to go reach him so he could learn how this all works i mean and then and then of course once turjan gets that information then everybody else wants it as well so pandalum so, who did pandalum make pandalum made sias sias okay and she's the twin oh not twin she's the sister of uh the other one sane how do you say it? Yeah. Or was it? Saeed? Was he saying? Saeed. I think he was saying Saïs and Saïn. Yeah. yeah. Saïs and Saïn. Yeah. So there's we've got the T apostrophe S. S A. Yeah. And they just happen to have the same names. I think that this is like, or you know, the same intros. It must be like um, the T apostrophe is T T stands for like of the or something like that. You know. It's interesting. Like I was wondering the why they because they're unrelated, other than the fact that they're created in the same way. But, but they also look the same, right? And they're, no, they're not. But are they unrelated? He made them from the exact same design, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's just that it's just he fixed that, the flaw with their brain. But yeah. it's, it's yeah, it's like spell ca- it's spell casting. It's very interesting because you know, like um, this is not coming out of nowhere. The fact that they're creating women in in vats or bottles. Is um, that's what alchemy was mostly about? It wasn't mostly about uh, about a, making women in bottles. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> it mostly wasn't about making gold. You know, out of, I mean, they did do that sort of thing, but that was more. Uh, that was how they. That was how the alchemists seemed to sell their patrons on why you should fund me. You know, mm-hmm. what they were really were interested in were were these growing 
growing creatures inside bottles. Homunculi, and, yeah. Yeah, homunculi, mm. and they are. Um, it's it, it is a real phenomenon. They're not living creatures in the sense that we are, but they are chemical products that grow into strange shapes. Right, which is like kind of what we're doing now with uh, ah, the lab-grown meat and stuff. I guess like, so, yeah. No, <laughs> we're nearly there. We just don't have the the flawed brains going into them yet. Well, yes. We've got the patterns. I, I, I was just very interested um, because Pandaloom has – so Saïs is the one – which one is the one that's broken? Saïs. Saïs is broken. Okay. So <laughs> No, no, no. Um, Saïs um, – yeah, yeah, Saïs is the broken. Saïs is is broken. Is she the one created by Pandaloon? No, it's the other mm-hmm. way around, right? No, yep. Pandaloon created Saïs. She's the broken one, and then Tersion creates Sane. Okay, so Pandaloon yeah, bro- made the Sain. broken one, um, mm-hmm. and she thinks everything that is ugly is beautiful, and everything that is beautiful is ugly, right? No, she thinks everything is ugly. Everything that's ugly, uh, everything that's beautiful is ugly, and everything that's ugly is even uglier. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, she does there, like There's anything. no beautiful. Like okay. I keep on hearing, I keep on reading that, like, um, in a couple of reviews and stuff that uh-huh. said that she saw ugly as beautiful, but I couldn't find that. That's not in the story. Well, like, there, I, there's, I, there's, some, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit confusing, but there is something along the lines of, uh, she sees the world and sees ugliness, including yeah. seeing herself <laughs> as ugliness. Yeah, but and they're and they're afraid of her seeing actual ugliness because it will be so vile to her. Like she, like everything is worse for her. Right. What, what we there's hold no to, beauty. What we hold to be beautiful seems to her to be loathsome and ugly, and what we find ugly to be to her intolerably vile, in a degree that you know I cannot understand. She finds the world a bitter place, people with shapes of direless malevolence. Ah. <laughs> uh. It's so yep. good. I love, I love his story. I love his. I mean, I mean, we we commented this when we did the moon moth. I mean, I just love Vance's mm-hmm. use of language. I yeah. mean, he he'll, he 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 makes those five dollar words work so well. Yeah. Um. Uh, at the beginning, um. Uh, the first book, I think uh, the wizard is feed, feeding is uh, he's got these beautiful trees with all these leaves that are multicolored metal colors right and then he goes and feeds one of them and it burps but he doesn't use the word burp he uses the word eructate which is <laughs> such a high level five dollar word that i'm like I, i'm i think i'm awesome because i i know that because i once wrote a poem about burps and <laughs> i'm like i need more synonyms for burps i just went through and looked them all up and i'm like wow he he, he turns a burping tree into like a beautiful you know sort of yeah sense and even like the way the characters talk to the woman and stuff, like they're basically saying, um, I'm going to rape you or you're going to be my bitch or something. Right. But they say it in this way, like woman, serve me some wine and make the 18 motions of allurement. Or something. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's all, they've got it all, all worked out. Right. They know that. Yeah, I think that's part of, so good. I think that's part of why the dying earth is interesting as a concept is because this is not um, this is the opposite of when the earth was new right when everyone is young and innocent and now we've got a world in which everyone is corrupt right everything right. is is there is no innocence there's only the the past and only loss and there's no future and and that's why um, it sort of feels like the matrix right once you've you've if, what are they gonna do when the Matrix is finished? I didn't watch the second and third movie. Thank you. Please don't even tell me about them because I don't want to know about them. <laughs> okay. But what are they gonna do when they when they solve this and they liberate all those folks who are in those tanks? Um, there's no fucking thing to do, right? Yeah. All they can do is sort of live inside that mm-hmm. uh, their tanks, and you know, and like know. Turn into poets. That's right, and yeah. And just know that 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 that's where they're where they're at now. I think it's really cool. The the um I was mentioning at the beginning of this that this is not this is sort of the middle of the dying earth sort of ideas because there's a lot of later stuff. Obviously, I'm pointing to the Matrix too much, but I want to point to some of the earlier stuff. So 
Uh, have you guys heard of this poem called uh, "Darkness" by Lord Byron? Nope. It's, no. it's pretty cool. Uh, I thought you. I thought you. Were gonna, I, I thought you were going to go for E.R. Edison here. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot, Paul. A lot, especially at the turn of the century, nineteenth, uh, twentieth century. Um, yeah. stuff. But um, "Darkness" by Lord Byron is. It's about six minutes to read, so I'm not going to inflict that upon you. But I will read the first. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to find the end of the first sentence. It's pretty long. I'll just read the first uh, sentence of it. I had a dream which was not at all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day. And men forgot their passions in their in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into selfish prayer for light, and they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palace of the crown kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons, cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of volcanoes, and their mountain torch, a fearful hope, was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the cracking trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. Whoa, that is dark. Yeah, it, it's called darkness. And uh, what's interesting about it is it's, it's kind of like um, you could see it as the day the sun doesn't come up, right? Um, and here we've got not the day the sun come up, but every day it gets, you know, redder and redder, and the light from it becomes more feeble and more feeble. Um, mm-hmm. And the, if you read the whole poem, um, it's pretty it's pretty gruesome, and it's kind of inspired by a real incident, a uh, volcanic eruption. Uh, that's the same one that, you, if you guys know the... Um, was this the year without a summer or something like that? Yeah. The the, the time in when they're in Switzerland and Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein and Lord Byron writes uh-huh. something and they all spend all their time indoors writing at night instead of enjoying the summertime because of the a volcanic in the summer. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's the year without the summer is one way to look it up, but and it's like, yeah. like eighteen what sixteen or something like that. Yeah, the Krakatoa eruption. Right. So it's kind of inspired by that. But um, the other way of reading it is it's just sort of a dip- – it's just like it's not um, – when he says it's a dream and not a dream, uh, it's kind of like saying it's just every day. Right? We're sort of in cycles mm-hmm. and, and people are – the darkness is metaphorical in a certain sense. But – it is it is sort of the start of a long series of maybe it's not the start but it's it's an early point in a long series of yeah this is not uh, a young earth and I always I was thinking about how in listening to this book I was thinking about how this is actually not a new idea uh, even for Byron because Shakespeare's fairies right and Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth uh, and the elves of Middle Earth. They're they're all living in a kind of um, dying earth. Dying from their point of view, yes. Right, I mean, from their point of view. The third third age of man in Tolkien. I mean, for the elves, is a dying earth. I mean, their glory days are long since gone. They, I mean, back in the first age, the elves were standing up against Morgoth, and right now they can't even face Sauron without help. And and you have you have these more brutish people just populating the world and all they have is all they have is their small little uh fastnesses of light against a a, a growing tide of darkness and ignorance so yeah for them for them the apocalypse has happened and this is the last days of the <laughs> world before they'll go off to Valinor and leave mm-hmm. i guess it's like our deepest oldest fear right like yep. the end times the end days like we've probably been afraid of that it, but so it's, it's not. It's not. It's different from like the Christian end times, where you know Jesus is going to come and we're yeah. all, or the world's going to be swept by you know these horrors. It's more like no. This is how we live now, right? 
And, and yeah, actually, he he uses the word a few times, like the twilight days right. kind of thing, which right. is like that little yeah. in between. Right. And if you think about how, uh, like, if you just read the news and just look at the environmental stories, uh, I'm kind of thinking we're heading into the twilight now. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that just too. the number of fish <laughs> that are left in the sea. And, you know, what with the rhino, the last male rhino of a species being put down, and this is with with a with a uh, you know not no concern. We we seem to be yeah we're kind of fucking this up. And, yeah, yeah we can't I was really like, stop it. I was um, riding on a bus the other day, and the guy next to us was telling his friend how like I just use as much like plastic and stuff as possible because I figure like you know you might as well live a little. It's like yeah we're doomed. Yeah, because that is <laughs> people are living like that like. Yeah, that is, and that's you know the way the billionaires are. We got to get our money in before the end comes. Yeah, so. we're in the twilight, and who cares? It's all over anyway. Let's let's just go hard. <laughs> that's a nice and uplifting book you picked for us here, Paul. It was uplifting though. <laughs> it was uh, it was so dark, but so funny and uplifting. Like it is. I don't it know. Is I a think fun I, read. I was smiling a lot while I was reading it, so. I mean, yeah, just just watch, just watching the the twists and turns and seeing these people get into horrible situations and try to get out of them sometimes by luck and sometimes by guile. It's, I mean, I mean, yes, it's not not a happy go lucky book, but I mean, I mean, Gial of Sphere has a happy ending. He he and he and the girl will now. Uh, run the museum of man and try to get some of man's old stuff back and yeah it's also real you know he's like talking about the actual nastiness of humanity Mm -hmm. this is actually how a lot of us are and i think when i read like stories where everything is just great and people are like falling in love and they're really nice to each other and nothing no one's been nasty or evil that feels more depressing because it's like that's not how people actually are like (laughs) It's not humanity. We are horrible, and we kill people, and the boys run around raping the woman, and yeah, <laughs> and it's all in this book, but in this kind of like humor where you're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, uh, it was it was it's a weird book for me because I'm I'm all about you know the ideas of a book, and here the ideas of a book are less important than feels like more like um, you're on a beach. And these are the waves coming in, and the waves are warm. And yeah, just, it was really hypnotic. Yeah, and they come in, and they run over your feet, and it feels nice, and you feel the sand go over, and then they go out, and you watch the the, the sun going down. It comes in again, right? And you know... That's such a good description. <laughs> it, it's not the normal sort of uh, Jesse book. Right. But you you must have enjoyed the language and stuff. I like did. I, I, I appreciate, you know, he's doing... It very, it's a very Clark Ashton Smith kind of um, mm-hmm. beautiful uh, so, yes. prose poem style words and and sentences. Uh, yeah, I mean, Zothique is very much a, an antecedent of the dying earth. Yeah. I think Jack Vance has had interviews where he's mentioned he's liked sure. uh, Smith and Edison and 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 those stories and far as building up his and in a way, so those ideas got transmitted from from bands forward to other authors. So in other words, he, he is, as you said, a conduit for earlier dying earth stuff to more modern, mm-hmm. more modern takes on the genre. You guys, we did I, um, the city and the stars, which is also a dying earth story. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clark. Yep. It's, it's set in the, you know, distant, distant future where everything's different. And there are these sort of, uh, inhuman humans that, are creating artificial humans and and even the robots are tired. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just like we're done with it. We're done with this place. But uh, I, I, neither of you was on a show I did with Mr. Jim Moon on William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland. Have, have you read that? No, before? I haven't. I don't think I've actually read that. I I know of it, but I don't think I actually All physically right. read it. You guys, if you want a hard book, that's a hard book, and the reason it's hard is not because of the ideas. It, the ideas are awesome and amazing. It's really long. I think it's 20 hours. 
Um, but or maybe 12 hours, somewhere in between 12 and 20. That's my guess. Um, but the hard part is the language is very sort of 17th century, which is very strange. So it's sort of pseudo-biblical language. But the story is pretty amazing. It's it's um, set on a distant uh, future in which I've got a contemporary review. Uh, I guess it came out in what is 1912. Um, so just before um, the First World War. Yeah, no, I was going to say just before uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' is uh, Princess of Mars, which is also a kind of dying Earth story set on another. It's planet. a dying Mars story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's a contemporary uh, review of the Nightland. The Nightland, with its carefully archaic language and its deliberate lack of so much as one sentence of dialogue may affright the ordinary reader. This is what they said in 1912. A spirit of real love, of young and fragrant and heroic romance, breathes in it here and there. There is something distinctly moving in its semi-parable in which it makes a universal appeal. The unpoetic and unromantic among readers will not get through a chapter of it. (laughs) I bet that is true. After all, they are more than sufficiently catered for elsewhere. Um, so this is just a, an insanely strange book um, about mm-hmm. a, a future in which basically the, the sun has gone out. Um, there are these vast forms uh, which might be aliens frozen in like their titanic Leviathan sized <laughs> aliens. And they're frozen in a kind of um, slow, slow down time so that they move but over centuries. And they are all approaching the ta- the last remaining outpost of humanity, which is a pyramid um, that is, you know, in a crater on the dying earth. And as they approach, um, a hero has to go out and venture out to save a girl. And that's basically the whole story. But reading it is it's an experience because it's set in such a such a distant future that it. It's like the, it's like it could have happened in the same uh, universe as the time the time machine, where you know you've got the crab mm-hmm. on the beach and he goes a little bit farther than that. Mm, cool. It's very it's very interesting <laughs> that there is this sort of phenomena of looking at the world as not a um, not a religious place between heaven and heaven but rather as a thing that can die itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a freaky place in that H.D. Wells story. Like, I feel like that's what, one of the moments that, like, sucked me into science fiction completely, like, just picturing that future. Ugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, do you, uh, Jesse may remember, I don't know if Marissa is, do you remember the old Choose Your Own Adventure books? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, the first choose own adventure book, number one, and so that kind of hooked me around right the start. It was called The Cave of Time, where you go into this cave in Utah and you can wind up in these, and based on your choices, you wind up uh, any sorts of number of times and locations. And one of them, and I didn't realize at the time because I had not read The Time Machine. You go through a passage, you come out. There's a landslide. It closes behind you, and up you see the red dwarf's son and it's cold and you're just standing on this beach. Oh and, my God. <laughs> and you're stuck there forever. I mean, years later, I read time. We like, Oh, they did the time machine. Mm-hmm. Oh crap. Except you're stuck. There. It's even worse. You can't even go back at this point. So, yeah. So that, yeah, that's sort of there. I mean, that, that gets into the whole, there's a whole, Think of cosmography is like what's the what's the future of the universe? Are we headed for a big crunch? Are we are we going? Is the universe is going to spread apart till it just becomes dead and cold? And there are people who worry about something that, realistically, we don't have any any experience we'll ever have of knowing that unless you get to a a really weird uh, situation where we get resurrected at the end of time or something <laughs> like river world or, or or like river world right i mean you have you read river world marissa no uh in river world 
millions of years from now, every, every human being who has ever existed up to the destruction of the Earth, which happens sometime in the 21st century, as I recall, is resurrected simultaneously on the banks of a planet that has this gigantic river snaking around it. Everybody. Oh, that sounds annoying. I mean, the the, the sequel. It sounds like a really big queue. (laughs) Well, it's it's a very big river, so you don't get to see everybody. But 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 you'll see a lot of celebrities. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The book. I mean, I mean, Burton's one of the main characters, as in uh, Richard Burton. Yeah, Richard Burton, the, the 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 African explorer. But everybody who ever was. Big and small is Mark Twain. Reborn. Mark Twain. Okay, Mark, that'd be fun. Mark, Mark, Mark Twain builds a riverboat, obviously, to go explore. It'd be good to see some of the cool people, but um, the idea of, like, just as you first described it, the idea of all those people in one place, like, I would rather go to that beach with the black thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, what's interesting about the book is the idea and sort of seeing it laid out. But what's funny is you get to the end of the book and uh, the first book's called To Your Scattered Bodies Go, I think. Yeah. Um, and when you get to the end of the first book, you don't get the sense that you've um, you've understood the purpose for it, because there is no purpose. The whole purpose was to see all these characters interacting. So who's the Nazi who's in there? G- Goebbels? No, it's Goering. Hermann Goering, Goering. shows up. Uh-huh. And no. you say, well, Hermann Goering's kind of an asshole. <laughs> I'm putting it mildly. Kind of an asshole. Yep, he's still an asshole. So it's not heaven, right? It's not hell. It's kind of um, it's it's a nice metaphor for something, but it doesn't really. It ends up not being one. I didn't read past the first book. I don't think. In, in, in my honest opinion, the the subsequent books really aren't worth it. Yeah, it's it's the first book and its idea is fine, and that's all you. I mean, I mean, they've made several strangely rebooted attempts on the sci-fi channel yeah, to film no this TV thing. show for really? it. weird. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, none of them really successful. They've yeah. tried and tried. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it's like, okay, once you've got everybody there, what can you say and do? It's like, ah, uh, but it's not like the whole idea. Like, it's I mean, the whole idea of a party who she's okay. I mean, that's the whole idea. I mean, here in the dying earth, you're at the end of history, the real end of history. Looking backwards, you got the remnants of everything that ever was just bounce of everything that's been done's been done, and now you're kind to play out the last moves of a chess game with only a couple pieces left on the board oh until God, the sun dies so out. Sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but 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 peop, but even with that, I mean, people are still striving, still trying to. I mean, I mean, consider the last story in this collection, not the last story in the Dying Earth, because there's plenty more after this. I mean, Giel is trying to gain knowledge and trying to do something with him and Cheryl at in the museum. So there is a little bit of hope that mm-hmm. you can still try to make something out of the last days of the Earth. I mean, most people are don't care anymore. They're just like, whatever, the world's going to die anyway, which kind of sounds a lot like... Uh, our environmentally degraded earth now, but, <laughs> but some people act, some, some, some few people are actually trying to do, if not, not good, at least trying to, trying to act with purpose, um, which goes ties right into, uh, the book of new sun and the whole plot of, uh, what Severian winds up doing in that book. So uh, because, give me a, give me a, uh, I've heard a lot about the book of the new sun. What's the story? Okay. Is it on earth or is it on generation star starship or what, what's going on? No, you, you, uh, well, there's a couple of series you're, you're kind of playing here. You have the book of the new sun and the book of the long sun. The book of the long sun is on a generation starship. Right. The book of the new sun is set on a far future earth. Severian is an apprentice torturer. <laughs> who there you go, Marissa. Vanished. Nice, happy stuff for you. Mm. Who gets back? Who gets up? Uh, Banished, expelled from his he's guild. He's an apprentice torturer, but he, he his main hobby is rape. His true passion. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's some questionable things that he does, but he basically <laughs> wanders this new earth. We know, we get contextual clues that he's eventually going to become the Autarch, hmm. and which was basically the rule of this most. A, a big chunk of the earth and this is basically telling his story and 
it's a it's full of Christ imagery because he's going to basically help arrest the disintegration of the sun and the end of the earth. But he goes on a dying earth adventure, wandering the land and meeting meeting the strangest characters, very very ornate, strange language, kind of like Vance, mm-hmm. but also very ambiguous and reading three times to understand what really happened, which is the the Wolfian framework. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we did the fifth head of Cerebrus on this show. So the book of the book of the sun is brilliant, interesting, frustrating, and wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to get it's really hard to get your hands around it. I I owe myself a reread at some point. Mm. But it's just like I know that would be a project with a capital P. That, so that I have sound like a project, yeah. Because yeah, because it, because the 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 long sun does tie the spaceship ones do tie, and then the planet ones do actually tie into the new sun. So if I were to do it right, I'd read the whole set. But that's a that's a massive undertaking, to say the least. Mm-hmm. But the the book of the the book of the new sun is definitely definitely the dying earth. Um, there's um there's a little bit of a trivia thing though. They talk about. Uh, the book of gold in the as as an object within the book of the new sun, which is basically interpreted as the book that gets you into reading, gets you into wanting to do stuff. And Gene Wolfe has said that for him personally, his book of gold was the dying earth. Mm. So it's a very, so the book we just read is a very formative book in Gene Wolfe's uh, life and writing career. Interesting. So my book of gold probably. I mean, given it's probably, it's probably the Amber Chronicles because I read them early mm-hmm. and that's like solidified what kind of, what kinds of things I like in my fantasy and science fiction. What's your book of gold, Jesse? Uh, probably the Hobbit. I mean, it's not, it's not science fiction, but, um, seeing, no, yeah, seeing yeah, a book, a paperback, a paperback on the, on my dad's bookshelf with a big dragon on it, sitting on a pile of gold and a little, I don't know, ghostly looking Hobbit invisible there. Um, saying, hey, read this to me. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Turned the world that was already magical into a real magical world, you know. Um, because what's your book of gold, Marissa? <laughs> I was just trying to think about that. Like, I think there's, I don't know, there's so many. There's probably not like one, but if I think about the the one book that made me, um, as a kid, like get super excited about reading. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to explain a lot about my taste in reading. It's probably like Cujo. Stephen <laughs> King's Cujo. Wow. <laughs> yeah, book of gold I think anything, I think I oh. carried that book around and like it got so tatty because I was so amazed with his writing and mm. and the darkness of that book. So it's a, it's a powerful <laughs> that book. Explains your yeah. career. And he also led me into science fiction because then I read all of his horror and then I read his Dark Tower series mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, science fiction is interesting. It's not just laser guns and mm-hmm. in fact it's almost never laser guns is it exactly yeah that's the funny it's just part. A i was thinking something paul said uh he says paul said uh he's done questionable things um that made me think um uh, yesterday i was watching a interview i tweeted it of of um rutger hauer uh from 1982 it's being interviewed you know for the movie wearing a really weird shirt and just being a very young Rutger Hauer. And the interviewer is saying, you're the bad guy in this movie. He says, no, no, no. Um, the other guy's the bad guy, right? Uh, Harrison Ford's the bad guy. Um, <laughs> but in the, in the movie, he says to his creator, which we have, you know, a few creators in this book, he says, um, I've done questionable things. And then the, the creator says, but also great things. Right? <laughs> and then... Uh, it made me think that actually um, Blade Runner is a dying Earth story. Um, oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Well, like, I, I wouldn't have thought about that in the context of of um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. But the, the imagery that we get from Blade Runner that's so infectious for, for film and sort of the idea of neo-noir and the idea of, you know, film... I don't know, dystopia, is actually um, quite strikingly, obviously, a dying Earth in a, not a fantasy realm, but a 
an actual right. science fictional world in which there are no heroes really, right? And everybody is got a game going and everything's falling apart and the environment's fucked and so the the creatures being created are are no longer biological because that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, the, so they're going to artificial. It's kind of interesting that it if you if you really look at what's going on in the in the background for that, it's it is a dying earth story. Uh, I would say that even more than the original Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine sure. is much more explicitly a dying earth story and all the imagery the, the 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 ecological devastation is so much worse we get to see the scenes of just what's happened to the areas outside los angeles the wreckage of las vegas mm-hmm. that i would say is even more the uh the the junkyard that uh yeah uh, protagonist winds up but yeah that's so mm-hmm. much more a dying earth story than even the original blade runners mm-hmm. and maybe that's one reason why it didn't do so well because it is a rather down and depressing sort of future uh dystopia with not a lot of ho- i mean you don't even have the hope of a of mat of a mad max there with apparently you, blade which- runner didn't do very well either originally i don't I, yeah. I i think people people you know they get i mean what we think of doing well now is you know whatever marvel movie comes out right and <laughs> and if you're comparing things to that that's like uh, well, I guess the first dying book, uh, dying Earth book, didn't do very well either, because it was 1950 when that came out, and we didn't get a sequel or anything until 1965. 15-year gap is pretty long, and it's—I mean, it's a book. It's not like everybody's beating down his door to write another one, right? So, this kind of success we see that the original Blade Runner has um, is not the kind of success you get with. Uh, with uh you know yeah all my students go to see all the marvel movies none of them Mm -hmm. have even heard of blade runner right they're gonna come to that later it's uh, so i think that annihilation and uh, blade runner 2049 and all the sort of the ones that they always complain about not doing well that's just that's just short-term thinking so taste yeah. of the moment. Yeah, I mean they're going to be around for a while. It's not you know the movies stick yeah. stick around for a while anyways. It's based on the on how well the money's doing rather than how well the ideas are like right. affecting the culture right. or influencing people. Right. Yeah. It's there's uh, all sorts of great films that have many many long lived lives because of VHS and DVD and and hopefully we'll have some sort of method for keeping such things in the future. Um, I don't know what it'll be, but hopefully it'll exist. I, I know there are a ton of um, uh, authors who have written uh, this kind of stuff that I haven't read. Like I didn't know um, John John W. Campbell wrote a a oh Donny Stewart is that yeah that's John W. Campbell wrote a short story called Night. Did you guys see this from the Wikipedia entry for the Dying Earth subgenre? No. It says um, yeah. Night is an unexpected side effect from an experiment in anti-gravity sends a test pilot billions of years into the future. The Milky Way is reduced to less than a light year in diameter, and the dead Earth is tidally locked to a much larger and colder red sun. All the gas in the atmosphere except for neon and helium is frozen solid. A huge city contains the frozen remains of humans, and the machines humanity has perfected are dead due to superconductivity caused by cold by cold so this is mm-hmm. totally john w campbell way of going with notice it sounds a little bit like uh william hope hodgson's book uh, uh-huh. and yet he's going it with it as a hard science fiction story rather than the fantasy kind of story we see here hmm. yep yeah this, this, yeah um there's we've met, we've mentioned uh gene wolf there's michael moorcock of course mm-hmm. with the dancers at the end of time and some um the the Hawkmoon books aren't a dying Earth, but they're a future Earth where things have gone a little pear shaped. There's um, C J Cherry. There's George R R Martin. We've mentioned Bill Jose Farmer. Um, uh, we've we've talked. I mentioned uh, the city uh, at the end of time by Greg Bear on a previous podcast. I forget which one I actually mm-hmm. mentioned. I might it might have been when we were talking about uh, about Forge of God. Mm-hmm. That's again a far far future Earth. 
as I, I mean, has a contemporary and also has a far, far future component where things have gone uh, a little weird. So it says that it's actually a, a an homage to the Nightland, which I didn't know. Makes me want to read it. I didn't. I didn't know that either because I hadn't read the, the Nightland. You so maybe the, you should experience the Nightland. It is hard to get into, but it is it's amazingly powerful. That's I wanted to ask you actually. Did you time. listen to that on audio or? Read yeah. It? Well, actually, you'll be pleased to know the audiobook is on the website. So if you go to uh, episode 305, um, that is an audiobook of the Nightland. It, it's 18 oh, cool. hours and 40 minutes, <laughs> which is not insubstantial. <laughs> and then the uh, actual discussion is episode 288. So we did the discussion first, and then I added the the. Um, okay. So yeah, it's 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 an amazingly powerful book. In fact, um, if you've read uh, the other big Hodgson book, uh, the House on the Borderland, that has some dying earth stuff in it too. Yeah. Um, it's not wholly set in the dying earth, but it is at least a visit to to it, or a dying earth, anyways. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty. Pretty interesting subgenre. I'm, I guess we haven't really uh, tapped into it as such before. Um, calling it what it is. Yeah. So I appreciate you you uh, pointing me to this, Paul. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, me too. Go ahead, Marissa. Oh, I was gonna say I. I think like if I'd only read the Moon Moth, I don't think I would have really got. I don't think I enjoyed that as much as you guys. Like it was good. It made me want to read another book, mm-hmm. but. I wasn't like, yeah, I have to read more Jack Vance. But this one I really liked. He's, he's really this is good my, writing. <laughs> this is my favorite quote from the book. And it's uh, it's um, when uh, when Gial is to, uh, when uh, Lee, I think it's Lee, talking to, to the auger and trying to get some information out of him about uh, what is what is future roaring. And I respond to three questions, stated the auger. For 20 terses, I raise the answer in clear and actionable language. For 10, I use the language of Kant, which occasionally admits of ambiguity. For five, I speak to a parable, which you must interpret as you will. And for one terse, I babble in an unknown tongue. Yeah. It's like con <laughs> man auger. I, I love it. And the auger doesn't get any money because he's seen through as being a fraud right off. Mm-hmm. So but it's just, 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 just that whole little set of it's, it's it's like the beats of a poem for 20 i give you this for 10 i give you this but five yeah. you only get that one get yeah. zilch <laughs> hmm. yeah even the even the the prophets are are corrupt and even fake right corrupt. <laughs> at the time everybody almost everybody's corrupt This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.